Well, last week, if you were here or watching online, you'll have seen that uh, we were continuing with Richard's series on uh, the Philippians, the epistle to the church, the young church, at Philippi. And in chapter 2, we were studying, you'll remember it, I hope, Jesus' example of uh, supreme humility. And in the passage we're going to study today, you've just heard it read, thank you, Barbara, Paul changes the focus quite radically from divine majesty, considering Christ the eternal Son of God, to just three ordinary men. From high theology to practical arrangements for the day to day. And in these verses, Paul describes to us and to the Philippians the importance to him of two men who have helped him bear the incredible weight of his not inconsiderable missionary calling, and who have been a great source to him of encouragement. Notably during his, you'll remember he's in prison, notably during his incarceration. So I've entitled the message this morning, you can see it there, with the pillars supporting an overstructure, supporting Paul's ministry. Now I don't know if you've ever been into a prison um, or visited someone. In prison, I, I certainly haven't. I wouldn't want to. I have to say, it wouldn't matter whether the uh, whether the person uh, there was guilty or were claiming to be innocent. It wouldn't matter if they were family or or not. I'm sure it would be a daunting experience uh, for them simply to be in prison. And so, for prisoners uh, like Paul, especially one who arguably who sh- should never have been in prison in the first place then this must have been a dreadful experience. He must have been suffering the indignity of prison conditions, possibly anger uh, at the unjust imprisonment and, of course, the deprivation of life's opportunities. And indeed, the isolation, perhaps the worst, the isolation from friends and family. It must be a nightmare. And it's no wonder, then, that Jesus in the Gospels, you may remember this, when he's talking about that, uh, how to be a faithful servant. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and I was naked and, and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was in prison. And here is the height then of being that faithful servant, says Jesus, and you visited me. It is no small undertaking to visit those that are in prison. And certainly in Jesus' day, Uh, Prisons were not nice places. They were not regulated by the state as they are currently. The conditions were often crowded, insanitary. Prisoners prisoners not infrequently uh, dying of either starvation or indeed disease. If you were wealthy, of course, you might just be able to negotiate yourself some solution. You might be able to get a, a house arrest, for example. That would be fine in your own home. Or exile into uh, a further part of the empire. But prisoners without money or influence, they ran the risk of being either left to rot or being even summarily executed. But one thing uh, Paul had in his favor was that he was a Roman citizen. 
And that brought certain entitlements, certain rights. Mind you, the, the status was not necessarily something that was a complete advantage. For one thing, it has meant probably that he languished in prison for longer than he otherwise might because the Roman authorities, they genuinely seemed at various stages in his life not to know what to do with him. They regarded him as something of a troublemaker, but they couldn't bring the full, bear, full weight of punishment to bear on him because he was a Roman citizen. And so it's no surprise in verse 3 that we, write, we read of his uh, desire and hope of a quick resolution of his case. He suggests that he's been in prison for a while. But at least it seems, on the other hand, that his status has saved him being tortured. He never mentions that. That was not an uncommon thing. It also seems that he's been given access to writing materials, Thankfully, we stand in the good of this because we can now read his prison epistles and what a terrific output uh, he had in that way. And he seems to have been allowed prison visits. Now, quite how these visits would have worked is unclear. Doubtless, as we see in this artist's impression, it would have been supervised. A soldier might well have been uh, there in the background. And any chains that Paul was in doubtless would have remained in place. But much is conjecture. But what we can be sure of is that these visits would have been a a welcome respite to Paul in his isolation. It would have allowed some useful conversation and work. Still able to work in the service of his master. Work to be done. But bear in mind from the point of view of one visiting that that was a risk For when you went to visit this criminal, remember, it would have been wondered whether you were something of an accomplice, an associate, someone who equally was up to no good. And it was a risk to go and visit these people in prison. And these visits were examples then of the selflessness, I hope that word rings the bell from last week, the selflessness that Paul had called for in his previous comments. Putting the interests, do you remember the quote? Putting the interests of others above those of yourself. And so it is then that Timothy and Epaphrodite, Epaphroditus, you can see where the name comes from, it's the goddess Aphrodite. Epaphroditus are spoken of in glowing terms by Paul, And it may well be, as in the picture here, that Timothy helped Paul write one of his many letters. I've skipped a slide. And letters, frankly, would have been the lifeline. The lifeline for prisoners like Paul, representing contact with the outside world. Now, we have the Royal Mail, which may have its faults, its strikes, and so on. It was a darn sight better than the postal system in the Roman days, which was very hit and miss. If you were sending something important, then special arrangements had to be made to make sure that that delivery, precious delivery, sometimes precious cargo, was given, delivered safely. So you'll recall the context from what Barbara read to us. The Philippian church had given uh, Paul... Uh, a fairly significant gift of money. They heard that he was in prison, and so what they'd done, they commissioned one, Epaphroditus, 
to go from them to Paul in Rome and deliver this money and stay on. He must have been a trusted uh, servant of the gospel. Stay on with Paul and, and help Paul. Paul's in prison, but you could be free. You can go out and you can continue the work in Rome. And so this letter that we read now is a sort of thank you letter. Christmas is coming. Well, we used to write thank you letters. But this will be a letter to acknowledge receipt. The money that you've sent has arrived. You'd be worried, wouldn't you? And also Paul wanted to give news of himself, which is what he does here. Because especially news had reached the sending church, Philippi, that their man, their messenger, had fallen ill. And they probably didn't know, did he fall ill on the route and not reach there? Had he been beaten up by bandits? Or had he reached Paul, but that was, he was of no use to Paul because he then fell ill? They didn't know. And so Paul here is filling in the gaps, just as we might wish to put people right, let me tell you. And so he says this. This is the plan, verse 19. I hope, he says, in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. The epistle of joy, you'll remember from Richard's introduction. This is all to do with how we acquire, how we enjoy and stand in the good of Christian joy in Christian service. How I may be cheered. There's a whole host of things. That, um, that possibly Richard has yet to uh, consider how, Christian, how the Christian life can be cheered by various means. And no surprise then when he uses this word, which is linked to joy. But what a responsibility then for this young man, Timothy. The idea was this. Because Epaphroditus had fallen seriously ill, Paul felt, we've got to send him back. He can't stay with us for whatever reason. Best, you'll know what it is. If you fall ill, you're taken to hospital, the first thing that you say to someone who visits you, I want to go home. No, no surprise that Paul, then seeing this, says, right, let's, let's send him home. And so it falls to Timothy not only to accompany the, uh, the letter, but also to accompany the unwell Epaphroditus back home. And once in Philippi, Timothy would then stay. He'd update the Philippians on the news about Paul and how the gospel was continuing to spread despite his chains. That's what Paul said. And he'd probably stay and preach a little bit and then come back, return to Paul, and would update Paul himself and continue to support him in the way that he had done. What a weight of responsibility on a young man. We know that Timothy was not uh, an older fellow. But Paul clearly regards him as being quite exceptional. Now we see here an artist's impression, and I think it's quite a good one, so I've used it. There's a family with a young boy in the foreground. He's receiving some sort of instruction from his mother, you can see. And I think this picture reflects well what we know about Timothy's background. Although his mother was Jewish, his father was a Greek. You may see the dress that, uh, that, he's, uh, that indicates his Greek origins. And this Greek man was clearly not a Christian. 
nor had converted to Judaism. We see him offering incense to the household gods, you know, the Greek gods, many of them. And so the likelihood is, and that's our understanding, that Timothy's upbringing would probably have been characterized by Greek customs, Greek values, a Greek education. And we also know that, uh, that he was uh, not characterized, his upbringing was not characterized by strict uh, Jewish uh, upbringing because he was not circumcised. We do know, however, that his mother, she's named in Scripture, Paul uh, names her as Lois, and in the background you can see Grandma too, Eunice. They did a great job of bringing up the young Timothy in the knowledge of the scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. They were devout Jews, quite clearly, and they wanted to pass on to the young Timothy their knowledge, their understanding of God's word to God's people in what we now know as the Old Testament. They lived in what we call Turkey, Asia Minor, as the Romans used to call it, which was one of the destinations in Paul's first missionary journey. Now, we don't know if it was during the first missionary journey that, uh, that Timothy encountered the gospel and gave his life to Christ. But when Paul went back there a second time, the second missionary journey, that was the beginning of their long association. Now, we understand, like many of us, I'm sure, you can't see my knees trembling, that he was a nervous little boy, He was rather hesitant, as many of us are. But Paul clearly saw something in him which was going to be of use in the service of Jesus Christ. And he chose Paul then to accompany him on the second missionary journey. You'll you'll recall from the book of Acts the technique that Paul had perfected. When he went somewhere new... The first port of call would always be the synagogue. He was a Jew. He would go to the collection, the the community of Jews that were in that city and would begin his preaching uh, ministry in that place because of the shared culture. And he could take Timothy along precisely because he was considered not to be a Greek, despite his father, according to the laws of descent, the matrilineal uh, laws of descent, Because his mother was a Jew, that was fine. He could enter a synagogue too and be considered a Jew, but not a full one. Because he was as yet uh, uncircumcised, we we read that Paul had to encourage Timothy to complete that ritual. But once that hurdle was passed, he went on, Timothy, to be arguably uh, one of the greatest associates of the Apostle Paul. And, of course, he'd left home. He'd abandoned that loving environment, we assume, to accompany Paul on his extensive missionary journeying. And Timothy was present at helping Paul in his works in some of the most strategic church plants that Paul made during his missionary endeavours, not only in Philippi, but also in Thessalonica. We know the letter to the Thessalonians. In Corinth, the two letters to the Corinthians. And Ephesus, the letter to the Ephesians. 
Paul goes on in, in another place to describe then Timothy, and not only here but elsewhere, as a hard-working, a steadfast, a loyal co-worker with huge potential that he saw early on. And he was Paul's right-hand man for many years. Indeed, Paul sent him as his representative to places where he, Paul, was unable to get. And we know that as in our picture, Timothy was able to help Paul in the writing of uh, many of, at least five, of his uh, letters, including the prison epistle that we are studying now. Theirs was a really close relationship. And we turn again to the passage and we see Paul's uh, comment in verse 22. But you know that Timothy has, it's a great accolade when I used to write these things as school reports, he has proved himself. What a great phrase. He has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me. He hasn't served me. You'll notice that. He has served with me in the work of the gospel. Paul was Timothy's spiritual father. And Timothy worked with him as his son. And serving together in the work of the gospel, the two were obviously a great team. The son, as sons occasionally do, emulating the father. (laughs) And learning... Yes, he did. Um, Especially the techniques, you wait and see how Jonathan develops, of, and this isn't necessarily, a powerful preacher. Paul was somebody whose oratory was clearly riveting to listen to. And Timothy was learning this. Working with him, he was picking up the skills, the techniques, and he would one day in later life develop his own ministry and would doubtless benefit from this training. Tim was learn, uh, Timothy was learning from Paul those pastoral skills as well, required for being a loving shepherd of uh, the people of God. And it's, it's interesting that Paul does not say Timothy is a wonderful teacher. Presumably he could. Or indeed, Timothy is very devout, a very holy man. Instead we read, I have no one else like him unequaled, who will show you, this is the Philippians, of course, genuine concern for your welfare. He was a shepherd. He was a people person. What an accolade. He had a deep interest and concern for the Philippians. An excellent example then, wouldn't you say, from last week's Sermon and study. An excellent example of one who understands what the example of Christ meant. The importance of being selfless. Being more concerned about the welfare of others than about his own. Timothy stood out, I have no one like him, as a rare gem in a world of self-seekers. But let's turn to that other prison visitor, Epaphroditus. It was said long ago, you'll know the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. 
And all the roads that the Romans built, of course, were pretty good ones. They were straight, they were well paved, they were good ones, and therefore, I've picked this picture at random, but you get the idea. Epaphroditus and his journey from Philippi to Rome could have been a lot worse. But Rome was a long way away. From Philippi, it was some, can you imagine it, a thousand miles. It's about the same distance as from John O'Groats down to Land's End and vice versa. That's the distance that he covered. Now, we know very little about him. This is the only passage where his name crops up. So, you know, we are reading between the lines. But we don't know, for example, whether he was a strong young man. You can see the picture. That's how the artist has imagined Well able then to undertake this strenuous journey? Or might the Philippians have thought, you know, we need an older man. We need somebody responsible. We need somebody who we can trust with a lot of money. But of course, whose age then would have been a hindrance for that long journey? We don't know. In any case, it is not a surprise perhaps then to hear that he has fallen ill. We don't know whether uh, this was during the journey or more probably during his time in Rome. But anyway, because of his messenger's poor health, Paul decides it's going to be the best, for the best, that he should return to his home in Philippi. He says, verse 25, it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my, and these are wonderful commendations, my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier, whom you sent to take care of my needs. You see, it looks, to me at least, that given Paul's glowing commendation of Epaphroditus, that he must have been in Rome for some time before falling ill. Paul's comments suggest that he has seen Epaphroditus at work in the service of his master. Not only has he delivered the gift as required, but he's also gone on and proved to be a fine Christian. That's the implication of brother. He's a Christian, a real Christian. Beyond this, he's been a co-worker. We suppose, therefore, that he's preached the gospel. That was the work that Paul did. He's a co-worker, a fellow worker uh, with me. And he has doubtless encouraged the other Roman Christians by what he's done. And we note Those of you who know your literature will know that Paul is using a tricolon. I came, I saw, I conquered. Three things, no and, just one, two, three, and the last one is the most powerful. I came, I saw, I conquered. My brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier. Paul knows that the Christian road is a bumpy one. He knows the Christian life is a fight. And that there were dangers and risks to be faced up to. And in facing these dangers, Epaphroditus has nearly paid the ultimate price for his service, falling gravely ill and only narrowly avoiding death. There's much talk in ministerial circles. You may not pick it up. They call it burnout. It's a fairly obvious one. Uh, Managers in industry have the same issue. Those who are engaged in Christian ministry, it can be 
a terrific drain on your personal resources. We do well to bear this in mind when another takes my place here. Epaphroditus, then, a clear example of the cost of giving your all in the service of the masters. Paul tells the Philippians, Christian service is costly. He almost, verse 30, he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked. This word is the word that they use in gambling dens. This is the putting of your money on the table. Here is something of my substance and I'm going to risk it for greater gain. It could be lost, but I'm hoping for greater gain. He's risking. He has not sought. He is someone who has followed Christ's example, who has learnt from that lesson that Paul doubtless will have told him time and time again not to seek his own well-being, but that of others too, and lay down his life if necessary. For the gospel, Jesus, let it be remembered, did not risk his life. We know full well that the verb is gave. Jesus gave. He laid down his life willingly to be the means by which our sins can be forgiven, how we can be put right to God and have God's favor both in this life and the next. There's no love, no greater love, no greater service. And if he, Jesus, served us How much more should we take that example and risk-averse though we are, take some chances for him, put some effort into serving both him and our our fellow Christians, not counting the cost? And that's basically the story of those two, but I don't want to run away from the narrative just quite yet. Because I want us to look at some things in Paul's own words, which is rather revealing. If you've read them carefully, you'll have seen immediately what I mean. Now, I don't know about you, but the image that I formed of him was was done during Sunday school days. We heard all about all the daring do that he did, the buccaneering uh, spirit that he was. And you think of the miles that he covered. Did you see all those maps? Three missionary journeys? He was frankly heroic. After all, his conversion on the road to Damascus, this is the picture, was a religious awakening which was well beyond anything that we are going ever to experience, surely. His towering intellect as well. Understanding the most intricate and intimate details of doctrine and theology... This is well beyond anything that we and our feeble minds surely might acquire. And then what about his unwavering self-belief? Which enabled him to preach confidently the message of the cross. To face up to scornful rulers. To hostile crowds. It's well beyond any meager confidence that we might have, surely. And what about that physical resilience, traveling thousands of miles in his lifetime, surviving beatings, stonings, a shipwreck? Wouldn't you have given up by now? 
In short, the picture I had grew up with was that of him being some sort of a, a superman. But in these verses, we glimpse something else. We glimpse another side, and it helps to put Paul and his work in some sort of perspective for us. He's a man of feelings. He's a man of emotions. You see, in these verses, we can see something of Paul's psychology. We can see his heart, if you like that romantic word. And we glimpse, perhaps, a more ordinary, a more, a more ordinary man, one like us, with hopes and fears and concerns for the well-being of others. We might firstly observe that he's concerned for himself, even though he knows that selfishness is not something to be striven for. Because we hear notes of vulnerability, that he is not afraid to admit to. Firstly, he's anxious. When you see Epaphroditus again, you may be glad and I, notice how he says it, I may have less, he's already got some, I may have less anxiety. This is a man who bore anxiety, therefore, already. And so we, we understand that he is not afraid to admit to feelings. I have no one else, he says in verse 28. Hints of isolation. Is he feeling his loneliness? And then in verse uh, 20, the... Uh, I've lost my place. There we are. Epaphroditus almost died. But God had mercy on him. Why? To spare me sorrow upon sorrow. He was already anxious, isolated. And he's letting us just glimpse something of his humanity and his vulnerability and sorrow. And we've read already that he may be cheered when he receives news of the Philippians. He's able to empathize with his brother in his suffering. He understands how valuable Timothy is going to be because he's going to show genuine kindness. And here's an interesting one. Here's an interesting one. You see, Paul is sensitive. This is something that men aren't usually credited for, okay? I, I speak from experience. I believe it's called emotional intelligence, okay, for those psychologists amongst you. Men aren't good at it. But Paul anticipates the possible feelings and reactions of others before the reaction has actually been shown. We're pretty bad, us gents, at actually reading the reaction are you, un, are you feeling afraid? Are you, do, you, you, we've got to ask how someone else is feeling. We're not good at reading emotions. Here is somebody who goes beyond even that. And he anticipates the reaction of the Philippians. Because they would have thought that he has failed in... I'm sending him back. He's no use to me. I'm sending him back. It's like you do with an Amazon parcel. Don't want it. And they might have thought that. And Paul, therefore, anticipating their reaction, wants to make doubly sure that they get the picture. He's a really useful man. Don't think I've rejected him. Welcome him 
as it says here, with the Lord with great joy and indeed honour. People like him. What a great pastor Paul was. But even he would acknowledge that his achievements were not down to him alone. He would probably point heavenward, first of all, and say that line, you remember the one, yet not I, but through Christ in me. If I'm able to do these things, it's because I'm empowered from on high. The the Holy Spirit in my life, enabling me to do these things. And secondly, he would point to these people who, throughout his life and ministry, had been an encouragement and a practical support to him. They were the pillars, if you like, the pillars that undergirded his ministry, which was a weighty one. And like Paul's work, the work of Taunton Baptist Church is similarly considerable. And the weight of various responsibilities should not be borne by the few, but by the many, surely. Each of us should be striving to bear the weight of ministry and ministries in this place and beyond. We need more Timothys. We need more Epaphroditus's. Our excuses are many and understandable. We may feel that we lack gifting. We may feel that our get up and go has got up and gone. And we can't all be leaders, of course. We can't all be, to use an image, the train driver. But what would it look like if we were all passengers? I'll not labor the point. But in the light of God's word that we have studied, God's word to us that we have studied, how might we risk ourselves and give practical support to the various ministries in this church? But finally, what about our own Paul? He's not here. Tell him not to watch this. How can we be Timothy? How can we be Epaphroditus to our Paul? And don't say that we pay him, because you'll know that money doesn't buy you happiness, nor success in ministry, nor fulfillment in any job. Being a pastor is an onerous responsibility. Goodness knows how he turns out a sermon every week. It's worn me out just doing two. And he needs our support. And he needs our appreciation. Did you know that if you were in America, currently October is Pastor Appreciation Month? Who knew? Pastor Appreciation Month. You won't see it over here, but that makes it nonetheless valid. When was the last time that you openly and concretely showed your support and appreciation for our pastor? You might form an orderly queue afterwards and get some message. But seriously, if you wish and you intend to support Richard, and I'm sure you do, perhaps in prayer more than anything else, let me give you a few Suggestions, and I'm a teacher, so the way, and when I saw this, I thought, that's good, they'll remember. We'll see. It's called a mnemonic. 
P-A-S-T-O-R. Ready? Sorry about the graphic. You won't be able, probably, to see that clearly, but you get the headlines. Here we go. You should be praying P for his personal life. A pastor is only as good as his walk with God. Pray that that is protected. And family, pray for that side with Rachel and Laura. Make sure that they also come into your prayers. A, for administration. You don't just waltz through ministry. It needs to be planned. It needs to be thought through. It needs to be strategic. And he'll be doing a variety of things, counselling people. How does he advise? He'll need to stop, think, plan, schedule these things. And leadership also will need that planning element. P-A-S. Yeah. Tell me about it. Sermon study. It takes a long time. You need that inspiration from on high. You need that energy to deliver. You need wisdom and tact as you encourage and challenge your flock. And he'll need time. There will be times, I'm sure, when time is at a premium because of other things pressing upon him. T, what about the testing? How interesting he's been away two weeks now. How apposite that this is where the tea comes. Testing times. He'll need grace to overcome the difficulties. He'll need strength. And he needs still to grow. No Christian pastor should stay where he is. But they should be growing in grace as well. P-A-S-T-O. He's in charge of everything in this church. He has that oversight. And so, he must be able to look at these ministries, make wise decisions and guidance for the various ministries, and that will take it out of him. Pray for that. Pray for his care for the flock. And R, needed most this week coming. I'm hoping he'll be back. Strength, it says there. The resource of human strength, wisdom as well, and of course the plans that he has, his projects, that he will do that. So there you are, P-A-S-T-O-R, we'll see if you remember them next week. But if we're good, if we're good and we respond to all of these challenges, then next week, I shouldn't cross my fingers, no, next week... He will reward us by moving into chapter 3 of Philippians. We're done with chapter 2. Great chapter that it was. And that's where we get this verse. The importance of knowing Christ. And not only that, but the power. Do you remember this phrase? I want to know Christ and to know the power of his resurrection. I'm looking forward uh, to that. I think we all will, and to see Richard back. Amen?